0: Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's great to see everybody. And uh, like you've been hearing all morning, we're so excited that starting next Sunday, we will be together uh, at Woodland Church in the Wild outside. And so uh, please do make sure that you uh, reach out this week and let us know um, where you can serve. And that would be amazing. It's going to help us uh, put it together. We need lots of help to make these services this summer work. And on that note, we will also be uh, in touch with you. Susan will be reaching out to uh, the families of uh, kids and youth about events that we have coming up. I'll be planning some outdoor uh, youth hangouts and stuff now that uh, things have opened up. And uh, we'll also be um, uh, in touch with you uh, in terms of uh, things that are available for, for us as a church community to reconnect and uh, in, in many ways. Uh, so we're really, really looking forward to that. Um, Nigel and I were uh, out at uh, his friend's place Yesterday we were playing some basketball outside and they have this basketball net that's uh, a little bit low It's about eight feet and uh, as you know, I stand at a towering five foot nine and um, So this little eight-foot net, you know, you can dunk on that net and so a couple times during the game I was able to to dunk on the net and I just you just feel like yes It's so satisfying. I did it. You know, I did it. I pulled it off and uh, the Eh, We're just going to mute one of our friends here. There we go. Perfect. Okay, where was I? Oh, yes. Dunking on an eight-foot net as a five-foot-nine man. So it's like this satisfying experience where you feel like, yes, I'm pulling it off. And, of course, regulation net is uh, 10 feet, so I'm not close to pulling it off whatsoever. And uh, Nigel was also helpful in reminding me uh, that I was not a hero in pulling it off. And uh, our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 21 to 37 where... In this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows the absolute depth of God's law to, the, to, to, to uh, showcase how the religious leaders of the day were dunking on an eight-foot net. They were not keeping God's law in the way that they thought they were keeping God's law. In fact, they had really reduced God's law in many ways to make it doable, or weirdly, in other circumstances, extended God's law far beyond where it was intended to, to, uh, to apply and uh, that they just simply were not pulling it off. So our text for this morning, Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 21, I'm gonna read to 37. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now you have heard that it was said You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it was said of those of old You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word. Now, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us as his followers to this incredible life of, of purity and integrity, um, and ultimately holiness because our God is a God of purity and integrity and holiness and most importantly, his holiness to be understood as his perfection and his love. Before the world was created, before the worlds existed, God was not just this sort of glowing orb of of power. He was a God of love, is a God of love and it's from his love that the world was created. So the best way for us to understand our holiness uh, to understand God's holiness, to understand our God's love and to understand the holiness he's calling us to, is that that same, that same desire that God had within, within himself in the Trinity before you know, creation passed, that was like, I want to share the love. I want to share who I am, who, who, who I am with those who are, who are not me. That that holiness, this picture of tremendous love and purity and goodness, that this be you know, the mark of our lives. And so it's from this point in the sermon um, that Jesus wants to um, call his followers into congruence. Now, it is so important. I've been saying this every week and I'm going to say it every week. I go through the sermon. It's so important that we remember that um, this life of love, it's not an application requirement for our divine adoption. These are not application requirements in order to be adopted as God's child. He's calling us to this life precisely because we are already God's child. So it is this call into this congruence. It is this new humanity that comes as being Christ's follower united to him. The audience, of course, are Jesus' followers. They've already uh, followed him. And so now he's calling them into this life of, of beauty and love and holiness and congruence. So this morning we want to look at really two things that Jesus gets at in this portion of scripture the depth of God's law and the effect of God's transformative grace. So we're going to look at his law and his grace this morning. In this section, Jesus shows the depth of God's law. Jesus, um, you know, praise God, came to fulfill God's law. He has fulfilled God's law for us. Uh, but here, Jesus is not against the law. What he's against is false and superficial interpretations of the law. He's, what he's against is the religious leaders dunking on an eight-foot net, saying, I've kept the law check and then teaching others to relate to God's law the same way, You know, so reducing it to externals. And so um, really the way that they, the way that the religious leaders dunked on this eight foot net was two ways. One, I just mentioned, it's that they limited the commands to externals and you see that when Jesus is talking about murder and adultery, he takes it from the beyond the external into the deep into the heart. But the, the second way that they, um, that they actually, um, you know, messed up uh, the con- conveying God's law was that they extended God's law way past what it was intended to be and it e- ended up being totally corrupt and you see that when he's talking about divorce. So I talked about the 8-foot basketball net. Well, now let's talk about a 25-foot net. Remember when we met downtown Kitchener and they would store the basketball nets by um, cranking them up so that they were horizontal to the ceiling. I mean, the basketball rim was almost touching the ceiling of the gymnasium. You can't play basketball on a net like that. Uh, it's totally outside its context. Well, that's what the Pharisees actually did with divorce. It was so brutal. You read some of these historians that talk about divorce in the ancient world, and it was horrific, uh, the, uh, the means by which uh, you know, divorce was just sort of handed out, like, um, you know, I, I'm tired and you're not um, doing it for me, and this hasn't really worked out, and I don't really like the way that you looked at me in divorce. And it was tragic, of course, because in the ancient world, divorce was an economic proposition for women and has been for quite some time where they just simply couldn't even make a living a a live apart from being married so married in the marriage in the ancient context was was uh was a game changer and so to be divorced was just a was like an economic death sentence for women so this was tragic so they lower the net when it suited them to do it and then they extended the net beyond where god ever intended it and they're like if you don't like the way that You know, your wife brought you breakfast, then you can divorce her. And it was insanity and that was going on. So this text ends with this massive call to this deep integrity. And that's where Jesus ends this portion of the teaching by saying there should be some harmony, absolute harmony between your lips and your lives. Let your yes be yes. I mean, are you going to be a person of conviction and character and integrity and do what you say? Um... If you're a child of God, this ought to describe us. So let's take a look at the depth of God's law and how Jesus kind of um, shows um, how powerfully deep it goes. He uses this phrase, you've heard it say of those of old, but I say. You've heard this, but I say. And unlike today, they didn't have multiple translations of God's word. Uh, You have multiple translations of God's word. After the sermon, you can fact check me and you can go and read the scriptures for yourself, right? Um, they, at that time, had to trust the Pharisees' interpretation of the Word. Most of them couldn't read. Those who could read, scrolls were very expensive. People didn't just go home and consult their own personal copy of the Torah. That was just not the world that they lived in. So they were really dependent on the Pharisees' interpretation of God's Word. And uh, so when Jesus says, you've heard it say of those of old, but I say, he's challenging man's tradition with divine truth. He's challenging the idea that just because something is old in tradition doesn't make it true. It's this radical uh, challenge, contradiction, uh, possible contradiction between man's tradition and divine truth. And so Jesus demonstrates his own authority because when he uses that phrase, but I say, he's saying no commentaries. I'm not relying on any of your religious heroes. Pick your favorite Bible teacher. Pick your favorite author. Pick your favorite theologian. Pick your favorite. Pick your favorite. I'm not. I'm not utilizing any of their teaching. I am fully authoritative. But I say so. It's like this radical picture that he's saying, uh, that he is um, not relying on on any teaching, but his teaching is authoritative. Now. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, exactly, stick it to the institution, stick it to the man, this group of who's who's, who are teaching things, and we all got to do our own research, yeah. Well, that's one way of sort of looking at how uh, teaching can go wayward, tradition. Here's the other way. The modern view of looking at the scripture is this little thing called eisegesis, which means I'm going to take my modern lens, my modern ideas, the way that I look at the world and have set everything up, As it relates to all manner of ethics, whether it be cultural discussions, conversations about sexuality, conversations around, um, uh, you know, um, uh, vocation or how, you know, I'm going to take my modern view and I'm going to use it as a filter for the Bible and anything that doesn't seem to work, I'm going to. I'm going to toss it out and say the Bible is old and antiquated and it should be tossed away because after all, me as a modern, I've been walking planet Earth for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And in that 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year view of the world, the divine ought to bend his knee to me. So you see, whether you're looking back on tradition uh, and saying, oh, perhaps it's not divine truth, or as modern saying, well, actually we have the market on truth, both of these are failure to bend the knee to the king. And so what Jesus does is he comes and he says, I say. And so that means whether you're a traditionalist or you're a a modern, we've all got to bend our knee to the wise wisdom of God, the wise wisdom of the scripture, and allow it to formulate all of our views. So Jesus shows the depth of God's law by extending his scepter far past the externals to the heart. And this extension of the scepter, you know, it's a metaphor that Spurgeon used to use. And because I use commentaries, I like Jesus, because I'm not divine. I like that he extends the scepter uh, beyond the externals to our heart motives. And so here's how he um, exposes the Pharisees, because they only cared about the externals and not the heart. And Jesus uh, repeatedly uh, was um, uh, condemning the Pharisees for um, reducing God's law in that way. And so. He he has this conversation about murder and anger. Well, he's not saying, of course, that murder is the same as anger in terms of their consequence because they're not. There's massive difference between those two consequences and the impact they have on the city. And also he does the same thing with adultery and having an overly active imaginative, you know, uh, uh, sexual desires and impulses. And he's not saying that uh, actually going and physically doing the act and thinking it in your mind has the... Is perhaps the same gravity it doesn't because those consequences are different, but what he is saying, which is staggering, is he's saying that at the source, the cause, the guilt, the sin before God is the same. the consequences in our neighborhood and in our church community, the consequence is not the same, but the core is absolutely the same, and he's what Jesus is provoking in the depth of God's law is for us to realize. God's law is not merely concerned with the final manifestation of sin. God's law runs all the way through to the very beginnings of the birthplace of that sin. So that's why you and I can be in Redeemer as a community and be a community who is compassionate not self-righteous. Because regardless of how our respective sins are playing out in our lives, at the core, it's the same. At the core, we still need God's grace. So Jesus is pointing to all this. And that's why he, he picks this word, um, angry. He says, those of you who are angry, um, the Greek word that is recorded here is orgizomenos. And orgizomenos is a specific word Matthew chooses, it doesn't mean um, anger like this momentary flare-up of rage. Uh, this word means it's fixed, it's settled, it's decided, it refuses to be pacified, It is. it will not forget, it seeks revenge, it's brooding and festering, And so, uh, brooding like this Batman on this hair trigger, you know, Jesus is saying, um, you're just waiting to unleash your vengeance. You've got this vendetta. And that's why he uses that language of, we read it, you know, you fool. And on the surface, you can say, oh my goodness, what is Jesus saying? If I call somebody a name, you fool, I'm going straight to hell. You read it and on the surface reading, it seems like that, but as we look at this and think about it uh, thoughtfully, there's this brooding, festering anger that refuses to be pacified, refuses to forgive. And then on top of that, um, uh, you, you're, you yell out, you fool. And so uh, the, the Greek translators chose the word you fool because it's pretty good. But, but, the, but the fact of the matter is you can't actually translate the word in Greek because it's really more a tone of voice. And so you could really almost put any word in there. You fool, you idiot, you moron. You, it doesn't matter what the word is because the point is this festering, boiling anger you have towards this person just comes out in this constant posture towards them. So that's why Jesus like, you just want to have a conversation about physical murder and I want to have a conversation about all the ways in which in our hearts we're, we are cutting people off and killing them relationally and deciding that we will not be soothed and hold, holding the sort of vengeance uh, towards them. And that's why Jesus goes on to say again to his people. Again, this isn't a, he's, not talking, he's not preaching to the world. He's preaching to his followers. That's why he goes on to say, hey, if you're coming and worshiping and you're bringing gift in worship, right? a.k.a. hey, Christians, this is for us. He's like, leave the gift and go deal with this anger. Leave the gift and go deal with that broken relationship. What do we see here? Jesus is like, I am not interested in your religious rituals. I am interested in reconciliation. I am looking beyond these externals of just coming to church and going through the motions and doing the thing. I want to know if in your heart, you're not just doing religious duty, but that there's reconciliation. When you read the whole book of Amos, this comes out huge, As the people of God went from a position of oppression and now they're in power. And what did they do with power? They do what everybody else did with power. And now they're oppressing people and they're oppressing people on, on uh, Monday, but they're going to the temple on Saturday and they're offering. And God says in Amos, I hate all your songs. I hate all your church services. I hate all your feasts because you're going through all this motion but you're not loving the poor. You're not caring for the poor. You're relating to all your, your, all of life like all there is are these 70, 80 years that you're here. And God says, it's nauseating, right? That's the whole book of Amos. It's this picture. So Jesus, what he's doing is he's going, hey, let's uh, not become self-righteous. Let's be repentant. The gospel being the way forward of recognizing everything we've received and then allowing this to form, form our lives as God's children. Again, not requirements for our adoption papers, but because we are adopted children of God. May this be a strong driving force and a motivating motivating force in our life. He's getting to the heart because he knows we all have buttons that can be pushed. That's the idiom that we use. Oh man, they know how to push my buttons. And, and those buttons are never like a code to a vault of kindness and compliment. We know when we say they're pushing my buttons. It's like, it's, it's the emotional nuke missile that's going. We all know this. And so... The New Testament makes use of this wisdom by saying things like in Romans 12 or Ephesians 4, as much as is possible, church, as much as depends on us, live peaceably with all men, right? Don't let the sun go down on our anger. Don't brood, but to go and to um, deal with offenses and care and love for each other. So he moves on from this conversation into the next conversation, which is about um, the adultery. And in verse eight, he uses the words, whoever looks at a woman... And Jesus is locating the origin of lust back to the desires of the heart, back to the fixation of the eyes, causing us to consider what is feeding our appetites, what is feeding our imagination. And so Jesus uses this phrase, to look on a woman, uh, because it's not casual, it's this sort of this persistent, longing, um, consuming gaze. And for for those of you who are uh, women with us today, this obviously applies to you in the reverse, in terms of the way in which you may look at men or the way, you, or way a man may look at another man or a woman may look at another woman. We can look at, consider all of those things to say what has gone wayward in our hearts um, sexually. But the immediate context here um, is that the religious leaders, they thought they were in the clear. <laughs> they, they, I'm in the clear because I'm, I'm, I'm not committing adultery, so I can check that box. And so what Jesus is provoking is, hey, if, if this is about, if this begins with a look, imagination is God-given. And therefore, what's feeding our imagination is of maximum importance, right? To walk in this congruence of love. Because Jesus, though he was tempted in all ways like us, Jesus was tempted sexually, just like all of us are tempted sexually. That's Hebrews 4. Jesus was tempted in in all ways like us. Jesus being fully God and fully human, he shows us humanity perfected. So Jesus is not seeing women as objects of his gratification. You and I should not be seeing members of the opposite sex as objects of our gratification, objects to be consumed, right? Jesus sees women, uh, when we look at Jesus' life and you track it, you see, Jesus sees women as objects of pure love uh, to which every woman that Jesus related to, he was either relating to like his daughter or his sister or his betrothed or his beloved. And like, there was like this sacred tenderness in the way that he related. So we can see in Jesus that people are not these sexual objects to be consumed, but they're these beautiful creations to be loved. And so he uses this heightened language, verse 29, heightened language about how to uh, relate to all this. And his heightened language is he's like, hey, he wants to get our attention. He's like, if, if, if something is causing you to sin, pluck your eye out. And, um, you know, he's using a figure of speech, of course. He's not saying, go grab the ice cream scoops, guys. You know, that's the application for today's service. Uh, go get the ice cream scoops so none of us sin anymore. And gouge your eyes out. He's, of course, he's, he, this is a figure of speech because he's getting to the heart. And mutilation, um, it can't extinguish desire. It might deal with the externals, but you're definitely not extinguishing desire. And if what, if what Jesus is doing as the king is he's extending the scepter of his rule over our hearts. uh, And he's saying, cut off what makes you sin. And he's saying, the thing that's causing you to sin is your wayward heart. I'm no doctor, but we can't cut out our hearts. And this is what he's after. We need a new heart. What do I do? All of us struggle with these sins in various ways. What do I do? I need a new heart. The good news of God's grace is that united to Christ, all of your sin is forgiven. The, the guilt of the sin is gone. And so now united to him, indwelled by the power of the spirit, you know, the grip of that sin is increasingly being released as we turn to him and we love him. And we see this text, this passage, as an invitation into congruence. It's not, he's not trying to crush us with the law. He's trying to guide us wisely into flourishing through his law. And so he's He's provoking and, and going deep uh, here. He wants us to be convinced. Uh, you know, he's not messing around. So he's saying it's more pro- it's more profitable to identify something that's feeding your imagination in a way that's inconsistent with God's wise guidance and cut it out of your life. It's better to go extreme and find a way to cut it out of your life than it is to excuse it, or downplay it, or hang on to it, and so that it, over time it has an eroding, disintegrating condemning effect in the life. That's the hellfire that Jesus is, is is talking about. That's precisely what fire does. It breaks things down and consumes them. And so he's calling us out of all of that as his followers um, to this life of congruence and love. And so uh, that flows into his conversation about divorce. And, and uh, you know, Jesus has this emphasis on the permanency of marriage. He gets us from uh, being God in, in Genesis chapter 2 marriage uh, reflects the character of the creator right in way back in genesis 2 right at the beginning of creation when god institutes marriage he says it's for this reason that a young man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife so that man and woman cleaving to each other this picture of fusion utter fusion what is that it's a it is a promise of future love it is a promise of future commitment it is a It is a covenant promise of regardless of what you do and how you fail, I will be committed to you. And that is the love and grace and covenant commitment we see in God. Now, as humans, we have failed miserably at this. As the church, we have failed miserably at this, right? Of course. And thank God there's forgiveness and grace for all of us who have failed miserably at this. But Jesus is provoking us to look at the permanency of marriage the significance of the permanency of marriage by uh, showing how they ridiculously, you know, extrapolated the law in Deuteronomy 24 on divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, divorce is permitted for, you know, if somebody cheats on you, there's sexual immorality, you know, of course, God God deals with, uh, you know, adultery, spiritual adultery all the time. We cheat on God all the time, but God has a grace that is otherworldly. We don't have that kind of grace for humans. And so in Deuteronomy 24, to deal with the frailty of human hearts, to deal with the nation of Israel, those living in national Israel who weren't even followers of God. Divorce is limited to, if you read Deuteronomy 24, it's limited to sexual immorality, right? Various forms of abuse, right? Uh, physical abuse, physical harm, where you need to get out of that situation where you can be safe. Um, the New Testament uh, gives us a uh, a wise guidance in terms of abandonment. If someone abandons the faith, abandons you, abandons the marriage, so there are there are some wisdom around divorce. But the, what the what the religious leaders did was like, hey, if it's if if you if your dream of manifest destiny isn't ha- coming through and that person's not making you happy, the ultimate call in your life is your own happiness and fulfillment, right? So get rid of them. I mean, the, it was ridiculous. So Jesus pulls this back, reins this in, and it's a way of pointing us to this God of covenant love, this God. The promise of future love. That's what we enjoy in Jesus. That's what his grace means. Though we fail, though we are adulterers, he is faithful. He welcomes us back. We don't deserve it, but he does it. A thousand times we fall and he invites us back. The glory of his grace. And because we are recipients of this ridiculous undeserved grace, we're called into a congruence of that. For those of us who are married, no matter how difficult and stressful our marriages are, right? Susan and I have been married 25 years. I mean, it's been easy for her because I'm a very easy person to get along with. But for me, I got to tell you guys, there have been moments when it's been difficult. <laughs> She's downstairs. She just went downstairs real quick. So I thought I'd sneak that in real fast before she comes up. I don't think, think she heard me. But anyways, it's hard. So may, by God's grace, do we lay our lives down and love our spouses for those of us who are here who've already been divorced? For that, there is grace. There is God's forgiving grace, scandalous and undeserved. And may that formulate the conviction that we have to be people of integrity and love and care as we move forward. Which leads to um, the final thing. He flows into this conversation about let your yes be yes. Be a person of conviction. Be a person of integrity. Verse 37, right? Let it be yes. Now, in the ancient world, oaths were common. Swear by the gods. Swear by this. Swear by that. And so the Christian community would kind of follow suit. I'm going to swear by the scriptures. I'm going to swear by God. I'm going to swear by and and what it was was it was a cover up for your frailty it was like you and your word and your character and your integrity are not enough and everybody knows it so you got to swear on something bigger than you and it was either a cover up for some you know manipulative thing or a cover up uh you know for for uh, your inability to actually keep your word so that's why Jesus says don't swear by anything you've heard it said You can swear by these things. And I'm saying be a person of actual integrity. Be the kind of person where when you say you're going to do something, the other person believes you that you'll do it because your life has that sort of a track record. And we know um, that that's what Jesus means. Some of you may be saying, Paul, how do you know that's what he means? Because God swore oaths all through the whole Old Testament, right? you, You find Hebrews 6 and Luke chapter 1 attesting to God being a God of His word, and he would swear oaths by himself, on himself, on his own integrity. Jesus spoke in oath under court, Matthew 26. And Jesus can do that because he is 100% in integrity. The apostle Paul made oaths, Romans 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Galatians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2. Because Paul, the, the oath that Paul took was like, I'm promising to be a person of integrity to do this. So when Jesus says in this immediate context, don't take oaths, what he's saying is, don't live a life that is so wishy-washy that you've got to appeal to some greater thing and take the Lord's name in vain and swear on the Bible because you have, there's such a devoid lack of... a Jesus is saying this is an announcement of your lack of character. And so you and I can look at this and we can consider if I am a child of God and I'm desiring to resemble the one that saved me in grace, I'm desiring to resemble the one who's given me Scandalous, undeserved grace. How do I relate to the oath that I took in marriage, if, if you're married? Uh, how do I relate to my character and integrity as a single person who's uh, promised uh, to my king, I'm going to live a chaste life. You know, I'm not going to be sexually active because my sexuality doesn't define me as a person. It's part of who I am, but it's not the totality of who I am. So I can live as a single person and be totally fulfilled. How do I relate to that commitment to the wise guidance of God's word? Maybe you're a business owner. How do you relate to the integrity with which you relate to your employees? How you care for them? Can they afford to live in this city? If you want all of their time, do you have enough integrity to make sure they can live in this city? Or do you need to have all their time and they got to work five other jobs so they can live here? Mm-hmm. What? That's integrity. That's the, you're like, oh, he's, Paul's getting political. That's the, that's from Genesis to Malachi. It's all over the place. It's not political. It's theological. It's about integrity. What if you're an employee though? How do you relate to the employer? Do you give them your, your good efforts or are you cheating you know, the company? How do we relate as, as friends? Do we make commitments to our friends and keep them? Or are we so committed to our, our own flexibility and our own schedules we basically never RSVP for anything because that's just way easier for us to just be people who are non-committal until the last minute. Okay, now we're up to it. Be a person of integrity. How do you, if you've made a commitment to this church, if you stood in front of our congregation and said, I'm a member, I'm going to give my financial resources to preserve this church and the gospel. I'm going to give my time and I'm going to serve. How do you relate? Uh, when we say, hey, we're going to have church in the wild. We're going to meet in a tent. Please sign up and make a commitment. How do you relate to the commitment? Well, I don't know, man. I don't know what my schedule is. So uh, we'll see. No, let your yes be yes. We're committed. We're committed. And we, uh, we take our commitments seriously. We relate to them in this way. And I close today's sermon with a, with a massive emphasis, exclamation point on the effect of God's transformative grace. We spent most of our time this morning looking at the depth of his law and considering in our hearts the implications of being people who learn to be guided by God's law. The good news in this scripture is in the context you see, the good news is that this, this whole passage, this is not, you've heard me say this a thousand times. Before I die, you'll hear me say it a thousand more. This, this scripture is not simply an instruction for you. United to Christ, full of the spirit, this is a description of the new you. That's the good news. This is not a crushing law. This is a, now the, a wise, guiding, and flourishing Law for you. It's a description of the new you. Maybe you struggle with anger. Maybe you struggle and you fail to forgive. The good news is that in undeserved grace, you are forgiven. And from that forgiveness, may you extend forgiveness. Maybe your anger has caused hurt and a hardened heart. Maybe you're in self-protect mode. My friend, the spirit indwells you. United to Jesus Christ, you are full of the spirit. He is renewing you to curve back out. Turn to him. Trust him. Maybe you struggle with sexual desires and impulses and imagination. Uh, maybe you don't look at others as people to be loved, but you look at, look at them as sexual objects to be consumed. I have good news for you. At the cross, Jesus Christ's perfect purity cleanses you of your guilt, cleanses you of that, in, of that impurity. So now by his indwelling spirit, repent and turn to him because the good news is God does not look at your sin and say oh gross and back away from you he looks on your sin and he says I love you and he moves towards you this is the good news of the cross turn to him in repentance maybe you've made commitments and you're not keeping them Uh, maybe your yes has not been your yes Okay, whether it relates to any of the things I mentioned earlier Uh, maybe you've not Maybe you, you, you've not been uh, an active and engaged member. Maybe you've been a casual observer. Maybe this last year I've been talking a lot about, oh, it's hard in this pandemic to share the gospel, but church, we can still go for a walk, make the text, get out. I mean, nothing has stopped us for the last year, whether you're in the dead of winter, to put a hat on grab a coffee in one hand, two feet in a heartbeat and love our neighbors. Nothing has stopped us, but maybe your yes has not been your yes and you've been a casual observer for a long time, right? I have good news for you. God has a long track record of forgiveness in our failure. God has a long track record of chasing down and drawing in and welcoming back his wayward children. So may God continue to renew our hearts and, desire, and may we desire the wise guidance of his law and may we do this by the power of his reforming grace. Let's pray.